Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Cornerstone. I'm so glad that all of you have come. I hope that you've survived all the, the Thanksgiving turkey and that you're ready for Christmas, because like it or not, it's coming. It's right around the corner. Uh, I, I bought this book a few years back. It was called something like 101 Things I Should Have Learned in Seminary But Didn't, or something like that, you know. I never did get around to reading that book, but I really should, should I, to find out what it is that I didn't learn when I went to school. Uh, but I'll tell you one thing I did learn when I went to seminary that I think is actually a pretty good guide. In fact, I think it's a guide that really any of you could use uh, as you go and, and uh, enter into the workforce. One of the things that they said is that when you go to a job interview, you don't just need to prepare to be able to answer their questions. You need to go in with a bunch of questions on your own and put the interviewer on their, their toes a little bit, you know? Because the reality is you might realize that you are signing up to work at a job that you don't even want when it's all said and done. And so I remember one time I went to this church, and um, I got a call from this particular elder who wanted me to come and to, um, to uh, interview at the church and, and be their, their youth minister, I think. And so I went to the, to, to the interview, and I made sure when I went to have my own list of questions prepared and ready to go. And so we went through the whole interview, and after they had asked all their questions, and I had done my very best to answer all of their questions, they said, okay, well, if that's all, then uh, we'll pray, and we'll, you know, we'll, we'll go home, and we'll, we'll call you later. And I said, well, wait now, before, before we go, there's one more thing that I want to say. i got a couple of questions for you. And so I pull my questions out of the bag, and I start to read them, and I will never forget the response that I got to one particular question. One of the questions I asked is, as a group of elders... What do you think this church will look like 10 years from now? I wanted to see if they had some kind of a vision, some kind of a goal and a purpose, you know, for the church. What do you think this church is going to look like 10 years from now? And I will never forget this answer. This one elder looked back at me and he said, I think in 10 years from now, I would like for this church to look exactly like it looks now, only smaller I thought, did I misunderstand you? I said, what do you want this church to look like 10 years from now? No, no. I want this church to look exactly like it looks now, only I want there to be fewer people in it. Now, I should have known right there, red flag, red flag, stay away, you know. Uh, but foolishly, I <laughs> took the job. Uh, well, anyway, uh, at the end of that particular uh, meeting, after I'd asked my questions and heard his silly answer, Something else that's completely bizarre happened. Just as we were about to go, we once again said, okay, if that's all, we're going to pray and we're going to go. That same elder who invited me to come, the same elder who had said he wanted the church to be smaller, then says, I've got one thing I want to share with everybody before we go. And he reaches into his bag and pulls out a sheet of paper. He passes a copy out to everybody in the room. And at the top of the paper, no joke, it says the words, the 10 reasons we should not hire Paul Potter as our youth minister. <laughs> Y'all want to know his name? I could tell you because lots of you know him, I bet. His name is Diotrephes. Well, of course, that's not his real name, right? Because I wouldn't be a jerk and tell you that in front of everybody, right? But I called him Diotrephes because he is a whole lot like an elder from the Bible whose name is Diotrephes. 
He's a whole lot like this fella from the book of 3 John who wants all the attention in the church to be on him and is not so willing to welcome outsiders into the group. And so today, as we continue this series, One Hit Wonders, as we're talking about these books of the Bible that only have one chapter in them, we're going to talk about what it means to be a Diotrephes and how it is that one person who's full of pride and focused only on themselves can really mess up a church. And that's definitely true if that person finds themselves in the middle of the church's leadership. Uh, let me read you what it says in 3 John chapter uh, 1. <laughs> this, is, this is verses 1 through 4, and then I'm going to skip down to verse 9. It says, This letter is from John the Elder. I'm writing to Gaius, my dear friend, whom I love in the truth. Dear friend, I hope all is well with you and that you are as healthy in body as you are strong in spirit. Some of the traveling teachers recently returned and made me very happy by telling me about your faithfulness and that you are living according to the truth. I could have no greater joy than to hear that my children are following the truth. I wrote to the church about this, but Diotrephes, who loves to be the leader, some versions of the Bible have this as, he loves to be first, refuses to have anything to do with us. When I come, I will report some of the things he is doing and the evil accusations he is making against us. Not only does he refuse to welcome the traveling teachers, he also tells others not to help them. And when they do help, he puts them out of the church. Dear friend, don't let this bad example influence you. Follow only what is good. Remember that those who do good prove that they are God's children, and those who do evil prove that they do not know God. It seems like the situation in this early church was this. Paul, Peter, James, John, you know, the apostles and all of their helpers, they would go around the world, and as they went, they would make new churches. But here's the thing. Unlike today, where you might have a preacher at your church who stays for 10 or 12 or 20 or 50 years, right? These people could only stay at a church for a relatively small amount of time. After all, it was their goal to plant new churches, right? And so if they were going to plant new churches, they couldn't stay at one church. They had to move on to a new place. And so after being at a church for a few months or a few years, the preacher would move on to some other place to start some new church, and they would leave behind elders who would care for the church. Now here's the thing. After only a year or two of listening to preaching, you don't know everything that there is to know about the Bible, right? I mean, the reality is that after a lifetime of listening to sermons and writing sermons about the Bible, you still don't know everything there is to know about the Bible. And so because of this, traveling teachers might show up who had been sent by the apostles and such, and they would fill in some of the gaps for you, you know? Preachers like Timothy and Titus and Epaphras might come in behind Paul or Peter or James or John and, and continue their work there in these communities. Well, at this particular church, which probably was in Asia Minor, it seems that there was this one person named Diotrephes who did not like it when new preachers came to town. He did not like it presumably because 
he liked being the preacher. He liked being in the spotlight, so to speak, you know. He liked having his thumb on top of everything so that he could be in charge of everything all the time. And he knew that if other people came in, he might not be as good a preacher as them, or he might not know as much as them, or he might not have the same leadership gifts that they have, and it may cause him to lower his position a little bit in the church, you know. And so he decided the best way to fix this was just to make sure that nobody else came in. It's kind of funny because it's the opposite of what we talked about last week. Last week we talked about how false teachers were coming into the church, and when they came in, they were causing trouble. But this time we're not talking about false teachers. We're talking about good teachers. Good teachers who show up at a church and who only want to help. However, this one elder refuses to let them get involved because he's afraid that he might lose his own prominence. What Diotrephes faced was a problem with pride. And because of his pride, he refused to welcome other Christians into his community. Do you know what the recipe for a dying church is? People who are full of pride and who are unwelcoming. But lucky for this church... Diotrephes was not their only leader. Because in the mix was also this friend of John whose name is Gaius. And so this letter is actually written to Gaius, who seems to be really quick to welcome people who are traveling into the church so that he can make them feel at home and ultimately so that they can learn what they have to say about Jesus. And so John said to him in those words that I already read to you how proud he is of him, of letting these other teachers come in, these teachers sent from John, so that they can help to edify the community there and to teach about Jesus and fill in all the gaps that John might have left out. Lucky for this church, there was Gaius. And here's what it says about Gaius and what he was doing, if you go on and read in verse 5. It says, I am writing to remind you, dear friend. Oh, that's the wrong. I did it again. I did that last week, too. This side of the page is one book, this side of the page is another. Okay, here we go. Dear friend, you are being faithful to God when you care for the traveling teachers who pass through, even though they are strangers to you. They have told the church here of your loving friendship. Please continue providing for such teachers in a manner that pleases God, for they are traveling for the Lord, and they accept nothing from people who are not believers. Thank you, Gaius, for taking care of these people. Because they've been sent by God. They've been sent to edify the church, to make it better as they teach people about Jesus. You know, it's actually really important that standing up front on Sunday mornings is a cacophony of voices. Because here's the thing, as wonderful as I am, there are all kinds of you out there that don't like me, right? Not, not me, right? I'm, I do my best to be good. But the reality is that one person can't possibly make everybody happy. I mean, think about it like this. I know nothing about sports. You know that, right? I know nothing at all. Literally, I, I know what a football is. Like, that's the whole thing that I know about football. Like, I don't know about sports. I don't know about, like, hunting and fishing or most manly things, it sounds like, apparently. Like, I just don't know about this stuff, right? 
And so because of that, because of that, I can't stand up here and use illustrations that, that might help to reach people who are into that kind of thing. My personality might be a personality that you really like, and it might be one that just grinds at you a little bit, you know? That's just how it is. And so what's really important in churches is that there are lots of people who are doing the talking all the time. Because the more people that are doing the talking, the more chance there is that you can reach more people. You see what I'm saying, right? My personality might, be, might not be perfect for you, but it might be perfect for her. And it might not be perfect for him, but it might be perfect for him. Plus, it's also true that all of us find ourselves at different levels when it comes to spirituality, right? It's impossible to stand up on a, on a Sunday morning and, and give a lesson that can reach everybody because some of you are going to be far more advanced than my lesson and some of you are going to be far less advanced, right? The truth is that there are lots of people in this crowd who are way more advanced when it comes to spirituality and Bible knowledge than I am. And so what we have to recognize is that it's good for different people to talk, right? And that's exactly what John is trying to say here. Look, it's so great that you're welcoming these people into your church and that you're letting them share in the teaching because we trust these people and we know that they've come from Jesus and they're trying to make things better. But you got to watch out for Gaius because, not Gaius, <laughs> Diotrephes. You've got to watch out for Diotrephes because Diotrephes is so stuck on himself and he's so stuck on making sure that nobody listens to anybody but him. He's so worried about keeping control of everybody else and keeping everybody under his thumb that he's pushing these other people away. This is actually, if you, if you, if you look into it, one of the first signs that a church is going to be in really big trouble someday. When the preacher begins to think that nobody ought to preach up here except for them. Go and listen to some of the podcasts that are out there now about big churches crumbling, and that's exactly how they begin. And John knew that that was true. And so he says, welcome the strangers in your midst. Strangers, yes, but people who you know and trust because they've been sent by the Lord to speak to you. Now, we don't have quite the same kind of arrangement today. There aren't exactly a bunch of people just roaming around teaching who've been sent by the apostles, right? We don't have that anymore. And so it's not quite the same situation. But make no mistake, churches are still being called upon today to do what we can to welcome strangers into our group. Maybe not teachers, but we're certainly called on to welcome people into the group who can edify us and build us up by their spiritual examples. Gaius seems to be the kind of person that understood that the only way churches can ever grow is for churches to start welcoming people who are strangers and allowing those people to use their gifts inside of the church. Now, I wonder where Gaius got an idea like that, where Gaius got the idea that you ought to welcome strangers. Well, I'll, I'll tell you where he got it, I think. I think he got it from Jesus. In fact, look what it is that Jesus has to say about this in Matthew 25. This is one of the most difficult sections of Scripture, I think. What Jesus says in Matthew 25 about this final judgment that's coming someday. Here's what he says, Matthew 25, verse 31. I'm going to read quite a bit. 
He says, but when the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit upon his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered. And he will separate the people as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will place the sheep at his right hand and the goats at his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father. <laughs> I'm so sorry. You all listen. I, I, I am like ADD. I cannot help but share with you the stupid things that go through my head. And then here's what happened. You see these little tabs right here? One of them was folded over, and there was a word missing. And I could not in my brain figure out what that word was until I stopped to unfold this, and now I got it. So we're going to go back to the scripture, okay? <sighs> you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you fed me. I was thirsty, and you gave me a drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me into your home. I was naked, and you gave me clothing. I was sick, and you cared for me. I was in prison, and you visited me. Then these righteous ones will reply, Lord, when did we ever see you hungry or feed you? Or thirsty and give you something to drink? Or a stranger and show you hospitality? Or naked and give you clothing? When did we ever see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will say, I tell you the truth, when you did it to the one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you were doing it to me. Then the king will turn to those on the left and say, Away with you, you cursed once, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his demons. For I was hungry, and you didn't feed me. I was thirsty, and you didn't give me a drink. I was a stranger, and you didn't invite me into your home. I was naked, and you didn't give me clothing. I was sick and in prison, and you didn't visit me. Then they will reply, Lord, when did we ever see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and not help you? And he will answer, I tell you the truth. When you refuse to help the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you were refusing to help me. And they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous will go into eternal life. This passage is difficult. And it's difficult in part because we've read the rest of the Bible, right? And because we recognize that the only way to be a Christian is to have faith in Jesus. And that's what the Bible says, right? That's how it is that your relationship with Jesus begins. You have faith in him first, right? But just because faith might be the beginning of this relationship, it's definitely not the end. And we know that that's true, right? Because we know that it's part of God's plan for bringing people into his family, that he includes a number of things that we experience. Like, for instance, we repent of our sins and we, uh, we offer ourselves to die with him and be raised again in baptism as this sort of uh, act of initiation as we enter into his family and his church. We recognize that there's more to the story than just faith, and yet this passage makes it pretty clear that no matter our faith, someday we're going to be judged based on how it is that we actually lived our lives. And the question that's going to be brought before us is, how have you treated other people? 
How have you treated other people? When you saw people hungry, did you feed them? When you saw people naked, did you give them clothes? In prison, did you visit them? When there were strangers among you, did you welcome them in? Gaius liked the idea of welcoming people into the church, and I think he got that idea from Jesus. And that makes me wonder where Jesus got the idea in the first place. I think Jesus might have got the idea from a couple of places. On the one hand, I think Jesus got the idea of welcoming strangers because he had once been a stranger himself. It's that time of year, isn't it, when Christmas trees start going up and when people start wearing their red and green and gold and we all start singing Christmas hymns and such. And it's the time of year when we start reading these Christmas stories, too. And let me remind you of this one, one that I'm sure you know well. Luke chapter 2, verse 1. It says, At that time, the Roman emperor, Caesar Augustus, decreed that a census should be taken throughout the Roman Empire. This was the first census taken when Quirinius was the governor of Syria. All returned to their own ancestral towns to register for the census. And because Joseph was a descendant of King David, he had to go to Bethlehem in Judea, David's ancient home. He traveled there from the village of Nazareth in Galilee. He took with him Mary, to whom he was engaged, who was now expecting a child. And while they were there, the time came for her baby to be born. She gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him snugly in strips of cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no lodging available for them. Now, every year we usually do a Christmas play, right? And we're going to do a Christmas play this year, too. It's going to be December the 18th, I think, on Sunday morning. Just, just you come and see it. It's going to be so fun watching the kids. Uh, but we often do the, the Christmas play, and there, there is a, a Joseph and a Mary and a little baby Jesus, and sometimes there's an innkeeper who comes in, you know? And the innkeeper says, I'm sorry, but there's no luck. My, my hotel rooms are all full, and because they're all full, you're going to have to go and sleep out in the barn. And you think to yourself, what a jerk. Like, this, this poor woman is pregnant, and this innkeeper can't find some way to help her out other than putting her out in the barn. But I think that we've misrepresented the whole story when we tell it that way. For one thing, if you go read this passage here, you'll see that there is not actually an inn or an innkeeper involved. They're, they're not there, right? Uh, we've just kind of added that in. Instead, what we have is this couple traveling from a distant city and experiencing this terrible timing. Maybe it's not that terrible. Maybe it's not that terrible. Terrible. Maybe it's providential, because it turns out that this city that they are now traveling to is exactly the place that God said the Messiah would be born. And so while they're there trying to pay their taxes, the time comes for Jesus to be born. And so Mary and Joseph begin looking for a place where they can spend the night. But unlike today, there aren't like Howard Johnson's and, and Red Roof Inns, you know, for you to stay in. They just go to random people's houses, right? And they say, hey, would you mind welcoming us into your house? After all, I'm a descendant of David, and you're a descendant of David, and so, you know, maybe we could like, you know, you could find a little hospitality for me here. But the problem was, because a lot of people had come to the city in order to pay their taxes, all of the people already had people staying with them, Right? It's like, look, I'd love to let you come in, but all of my beds are full. Like, I've got nowhere to, to, to let you stay. And so this one fella says, look, I'll, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll let you come into my house, but you need to know that my guest room is already full. 
My guest room is already full, and besides that, if you're having a baby, you probably want a little privacy, don't you? And so, so what, what I'll do is this. I'll just clear out the bottom floor of my house for you. I'll clear out the bottom floor of my house, the place where we usually keep the animals. That way you'll have a little bit of warmth and a little bit of privacy, and you can deliver that baby. I'm sure that my wife and some of the other people who live in this village, the midwives, will be happy to come and help you. And so that's exactly what happens. Jesus, his mom, and his dad are strangers in this city, and people take them in. And they show them a little bit of hospitality and kindness. They let them come into their home in order that Jesus can be born. Now, Jesus likely remembers none of that since he was zero years old when it happened. But he might well remember, just might, what happens a little later. When he and his family are forced to flee, escaping the terrible thing that Herod is doing to all the children, and they run off to the land of Egypt. And there, as a toddler, once again, Jesus finds himself living as a stranger in a strange land. Jesus thought you ought to take care of strangers because Jesus had been a stranger himself. In fact, it's not just that. Jesus knew that his family, his ancestors, had a history of often being strangers in foreign lands. I mean, you can go through the pages of the Old Testament and find where they were living uh, in, in places that were not their home. You can find where they were living in Egypt and Assyria and Babylon and other places. Jesus believed you ought to take care of strangers because he knew that his people had often been strangers too. In fact, look what it says in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 19. It says, so you too must show love to foreigners. For you yourselves were once foreigners in the land of Egypt. Where did Jesus get the idea that you ought to show love to foreigners? Well, he got it from the Old Testament, right? And he got it from experience. And it's what he taught his disciples and it's what they taught their disciples, and that's what led Gaius to welcome people into his church. Now, I told you our situation today is a little different than the situation back then, but that doesn't mean that we can't be welcoming people inside of this church. So let me share with you a couple of ways, three ways really, that you can be welcoming to people here. Here's the first thing that you can do if you want to do what Jesus says and help out people who are strangers. You can get involved in what Todd does here at the church. Many of you know Todd Ratliff. He is in charge. He's one of our deacons, but he's in charge of the missions that happen here at the church. And so right now, Todd, you're going to have to help me, but I think I'm right. We support missions in um, Haiti and in Africa and in India. Is that right? And then on top of that, we support local missions. So we're supporting missions like uh, we're involved with Pregnancy Center here in town. And we have our own mission, right? Our own uh, nonprofit food pantry, which we support every month from the church. And so if you want to get involved in helping people who are strangers, a really great way to do it is to get involved in the kind of things that Todd tells us about sometimes. And I know some of you are doing that already. Like, you've already this year bought Christmas presents for the kids in Haiti, and you um, have helped pack rice for uh, folks who live uh, in 
really difficult parts of the world. Um, and um, you can do other things too. You can, you can um, uh, get involved not only by praying and by giving money, but by jumping in and helping as these opportunities come about, right? And if you want to do it and you want to do it immediately, you can do it today. Because it turns out that today at 2 o'clock is our food pantry. And we need people to help us to uh, unload boxes and to put boxes in cars and to fill out paperwork and just to say hello to people and offer people a, a cup of coffee or something. Uh, by doing that, you really can show strangers that they are welcome here. Well, a second way that you can jump in and you can help people who are strangers, uh, just like Jesus asked us to do, is that you can just be good about being welcoming to church guests who show up. We have a lot of first-time guests who come here. And it means a lot to people who've never been to a church before if you just say hello to them. It means a whole lot to them if you're willing to ask them to go to lunch with you after church or ask them to come and sit by you during the service. And boy, it doesn't even cost very much at all for you to do that kind of thing, does it? It turns out going to church can be a really scary thing. If you've never been to church ever your whole life, then you might not know exactly what it is that goes on in there. <laughs> and maybe you've heard weird stories, right? And you're not sure when they're going to bring the snakes out and stuff like that. And so, you know, you got to be, you got to be like a little bit worried. Well, so they need people with friendly faces to say hello and come sit with me and let's, let's talk and let's be buddies so that they know that this place isn't scary. But even if you've been to church before, if you're just going from like another city or something and you're coming here and you're already a Christian, you're already a churchgoer, it can be really scary to go to a church. Because just because you know what church is about, you don't know what this particular church is about, right? And just because you don't, even though you know what church is all about, you don't know the people who are sitting in the pews with you. And so you can be in a room full of 200 people and still feel like you're by yourself. I remember one time, one time, I've told you this story before, but it, it, it's the best. One time, I went to this church up the road. I was preaching at like a revival or something, I don't remember. And um, I got there early, and all the seats were empty in the auditorium. It was literally 200 chairs, they were all empty. And so I sat down in one of them, just kind of waiting for somebody to show up, you know. And so my friend shows up, and I go over and sit by my friend. Two people in a room with 200 chairs, Okay. Well, we're sitting there talking, and as we talk, I feel this, like, presence behind me, you know, like somebody breathing down my neck. And I turn around, and there's this lady there, and I say, uh, hey, how you doing? You know, it's good, good to see you. I'm Paul, whatever. You know, like the normal things you say. Well, after I introduced myself to her and all that, it, you know, the conversation kind of, you know, it just went into a lull. So I turned back to my friend and started talking to him again. Well, a few minutes later, I realized that this lady hasn't moved. She's still right there over my shoulder. And so I turn back to her, and I think, well, she just wants to be involved in the conversation. And so I start talking to her, and I'm like, hey, so, you know, like, well, it turns out she does not care at all about what we're talking about, and she does not want to be in the conversation. She makes it pretty clear, because ultimately, she kind of just turns her back to us. And so I turn back to my friend, and we're talking, and then a few minutes later, I feel her, and she's right there again, like right on top of me, and I'm like, what is going on? And then it hits me. Have you all figured out what it is? I turn to her, and I say, I'm sitting in your chair, aren't I? And she says, yes, you are. And so my friend and I literally moved over one seat, and then she sat down in her chair. 200 empty chairs. She had to have that one. 
Now, was she being mean? No. That's just her chair. That's just where she always sits, right? That's just what was normal to her. And that's the problem with church people. If you come here every week, and this feels like home to you, then you might forget that there was a moment when you were once a stranger here. You might forget what it was like to show up somewhere new, not knowing anybody, and just hoping somebody says hello. That reminds me of another time that Kristen and I, it was when I was in seminary in Tennessee, and we were looking for churches around Johnson City there so that we could, we could go to church, right? Because um, we, we, were, uh, we were kind of church shopping, you know what I mean? Trying to find a church that was a fit for us. And so we went to a couple of different churches, and finally somebody said, you really need to go to this church. It's my church. It's the best church. You'll love it. And so I go to this church. It's a huge, big church. It's got several thousand people in it. And we go in and sit down in the church. We, we, we listen to the, the, the music. We, we worship. We take communion. We do the sermon. It was all so good. Great service. And not one person ever spoke to us the entire time we were in the building. And then as we were leaving, I, it, it, it irritated me, you know, because I was already a preacher at this point. And it irritated me that nobody talked to us. And so I was, of course, complaining about it, because there you go. And so as I'm walking out the door, um, I said, Kristen, there's the preacher. And he was standing in the back of the room like preachers often do, and they were shaking hands, you know. And I said, he has to talk to us because he gets paid to talk to us. And so I go on up towards him, and it's my turn, and I'm thinking, here's my chance. He's finally going to say hello, and I put my hand out like this to shake his hand. And exactly at the moment that I put my hand out, somebody beside of him says, hey, pastor, can you whatever? And he goes, yeah, I can help you, no problem. And he doesn't shake my hand. We went to an entire church service, and not one person spoke to us or shook our hand. And we never went back. That other person might have loved their church and thought it was the best one ever, but we went to a different one. If you want to do what Jesus said and welcome strangers, one way that you can do it is by just welcoming people here. Let people know you love them, and that will help them to know that God loves them too. Now, let me give you one more way that you can help strangers uh, here, and that is to help the actual literal strangers, right? I mean, these verses that talk about strangers and foreigners and all that are talking about people who live in other places. And I realize that here in the mountains, we can be a little bit insular, and I recognize that we've all got big families and such, and we kind of stick with our family. We're a little bit clannish, you know. But there are all kinds of people moving into our communities, right, from far off places because of the hospital and the college and stuff like that. And so we need to be willing to do what we can to include people in our groups, right? Not just here, but even uh, our other groups out in the community and such, right? Let's do whatever we can to welcome people the best that we can to our mountains because what we're going to discover is that this place can become its own mission field. And that even right here in our own neighborhoods, there are people who probably don't know anything at all about Jesus, and we can help them to discover it if we're just willing to be friendly. The reality is that there are people here who need help. And we can offer it to them. Not because we have some kind of agenda, 
but simply because Jesus said we should love strangers and take care of them. The question really at the end of the day just is whether we are going to be like Gaius or like Diotrephes. Whether we're going to be people who are so focused on ourselves that we don't care about the other people around us, or whether we're going to be people who do our very best to try to welcome strangers in. Here's what it says in uh, verse 8 of 3 John. It says, We ourselves should, should support them so that we can be their partners as they teach the truth. John said that by supporting those traveling teachers, you were taking a part in their ministry. And I think the same applies for the situation that we're in today. By just being welcoming to visitors, by just showing love to strangers in our communities, we can partner with Jesus. And we can show people that we love them and that he loves them too. And so may we here at Cornerstone be a church who shows hospitality to others as we work together toward the big goal of making more and better disciples of Jesus. Why don't we pray? Today, Father, we're thankful for your son, Jesus, who has given so much in order that we could be made whole and clean. Let us never forget, Father, that we were once strangers, outsiders to this community, outsiders to the church. And let us be thankful for those who welcomed us in, who showed us love and mercy, and who helped us to see Jesus. And help us today, Father, to do the same for others. Help us to show hospitality so that we can work together for the truth. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took some bread and blessed it and broke it. He shared it with his disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. That same night, he took the cup and blessed it and poured it out and shared it with all of his friends and said, Drink this, all of you. This is the new covenant in my blood shed for the sins of the world. So we do what our Lord Jesus asked us to do. We eat some bread and drink some juice in order to remember his body and his blood. Shed for the sins of the world. Even folks who were once strangers like us. Welcoming us into his big happy family. Let's eat and drink together.